working on me. That's him on his knees. All right, we are back. We want to talk about scandals. We want to talk about news from around the world. But we've got a couple items laying around from the miscellaneous file. Coming from Mental Floss Magazine. And by the way, this gives us an idea that we, we may want to resume something we did in the show years ago, which was vocabulary. We kind of got away from that. And maybe our good friend Dr. Andy Jones of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology, being as he is a professor of English, may want to join us for a, maybe a monthly segment to tra- talk about some words that we should use. We should reintroduce the language. In fact, one candidate which we're going to take from mental floss is the word sockdologer. This word was actually popular throughout the 19th century and originally referred to a fight's decisive blow. But its definition was eventually broadened to indicate exceptionalness in any respect, frequently that of a particularly large fish. I think we could use a word like sockdologer. Mental Floss also noted in a section that uh, you probably know that modern forms of some words have lost letters. But it turns out that not all letters that are lost disappear. Some of them just move around. They note in the piece that false splitting occurs when speakers and writers unwittingly redraw the boundaries between words and their articles. It's a phenomenon that made a few Middle English words less valuable in Scrabble. For example, today we say an apron. It was originally a napron. And although now we say a newt, as in Gingrich, originally it was an ute. Oh, I think a ute is a terrible word. I'm, I'm glad we now call it a newt. And while now we say a nickname, apparently originally was an ekname. I do find these a bit incredible, but, but apparently, although today we say an apple, originally it was a napple. Of course, that would be a case of comparing Napples and oranges. Now, one guy we like to quote in this program is Matt Taibbi. He's doing some fine reporting over at Rolling Stone. We talked last week about how Wall Street's managed to rewrite legislation that's meant to rein it in. In a uh, follow-up piece in the July 5th through 19th edition of Rolling Stone, Matt had an article titled, The Scam Wall Street Learned from the Mafia. In it, Taibbi talked about how the collapses of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers pointed to coordinated attacks by powerful banks and hedge funds determined to speed the demise of those firms. In detailing how some of these scams work, the article centers on a case you you surely have never heard of unless you read the piece, which was United States of America versus Carollo, Goldberg, and Grimm. And to be honest, there's no way I can possibly do justice to this complicated case and complicated article, so I'd recommend you read it yourself, but I do want to quote a bit from it. Describing this trial, Taibbi said that once opening statements began, it was easy to see why the press might stay away. One of the main lines of defense for corrupt Wall Street institutions in recent years has been the extreme complexity of the infrastructure within which the crimes are committed. In order for prosecutors to win convictions, they have to drag ordinary Americans who watch and enjoy reality TV up the steepest of learning curves, coaching them into game shape with regard to obscure financial vehicles like swaps and CDOs, and in this case, guaranteed investment contracts. Both prosecution and defense, in this case, began their opening remarks to the jury by apologizing for the hellishly dull maze of convoluted and boring and tedious financial transactions they are about to spend weeks hearing about. Taibbi noted that only Wendy Wasmer, the the feisty federal prosecutor, 
succeeded in cutting through the mountainous dung heap of acronyms and obfuscations and explained what the case was about, saying, quote, even though some aspects of municipal bond finance are complex, the fraud here is simple. It was about lying and cheating cities and towns in a bidding process that was in place to protect them. Anyway, as I say, it is a complicated case. We don't have time to even try and delve into it, but it's a good article, so, dear listener, please try and read it. And in that article, they make passing mention of what may be a gigantic scandal brewing on Wall Street. We'd also refer you to a piece in nationofchange.org on the web, piece by Robert Reich, talking about the Libor scandal. This one is still being unraveled, but it has, uh, it, it has the potential to shock even people who are weary of financial shocks about corruption on Wall Street. This one seems to be impressing even the, uh, the jaded folks over at The Economist. Noted The Economist, The most memorable incidents and earth-changing events are sometimes the most banal. In the rapidly spreading scandal of LIBOR, the London Interbank Offered Rate, is the very everydayness with which bank traders set about manipulating the most important figure in finance. They joked or offered small favors. Coffees will be coming your way, promised one trader in exchange for a fiddled number. Dude, I owe you big time. I'm opening a bottle of Bollinger, wrote another. One trader posted diary notes to himself so he wouldn't forget to fiddle the numbers next week. Ask for high 6M fix, he entered in his calendar, as he might have put, buy milk. What may still seem to many to be a parochial affair involving Barclays, a 300-year-old British bank, rigging an obscure number is beginning to assume global significance. The number that the traders were toying with determines the prices that people and corporations around the world pay for loans or receive for their savings. It's used as a benchmark to set payments on about $800 trillion, yes, with a T, $800 trillion worth of financial instruments, ranging from complex interest rate derivatives to simple mortgages. The number determines the global flow of billions of dollars each year, yet it turns out to have been flawed, although The Economist doesn't say so, apparently rigged. This, too, is an item that we're going to have to refer to in the future when we have uh, perhaps an expert on the show to try and walk our way through this. Like a letter to the editor, uh, to the Sacramento Bee, someone named Yvonne Yu wrote about Indian casinos being out of control. I thought she summarized this whole story pretty well, saying, Regarding tribes pushing for more casinos, I don't have moral or religious objections to gambling, but speaking pragmatically, not only is organized gambling one of the most unredeeming forms of recreation known to man, it is clearly a social ill. And now, tribes want to buy property outside their reservations and define it as, quote, reservation land, unquote, solely for the purpose of building casinos. For government at any level to consider allowing this Indian greed to supersede the vital interests of sovereign American communities would be beyond outrageous. We do agree. Anyway, that's enough of our half-to-bake talk on economics. All right, we've got about five minutes left in this segment. So let's talk about some biology. Oh, and by the way, we're very looking forward on next week's show to a talk we expect to have with author Sam Keen about his new book, The Violinist Thumb and Other Lost Tales of Love, War, and Genius as Written by Our Genetic Code. Pretty good book on DNA. That one's going to be a fun one. 
Speaking of DNA, the mystery of why tomatoes taste so crappy has apparently been solved, uh, in part due to research done here at UC Davis by Ann Powell, a plant biochemist. Paper published in the journal Science last month uh, revealed that one of the problems with lousy-tasting tomatoes is that about 70 years ago, a mutant form of tomatoes came along that uh, ripened uniformly. This was very desirable from a marketing standpoint, so plant breeders built this trait into all the tomatoes that you buy. It's just one problem with this. Turns out the same mutation that makes these uh, nicely ripening tomatoes makes them taste crappy. Because the gene that was inactivated by that mutation plays an important role in producing the sugar and aromas that are the essential, that are the essence of a fragrant, flavorful tomato. And as so often happens, the solution to this may come from wild genes uh, or from heirloom tomatoes grown in people's backyards that don't have that trait of uniform ripening, but taste good. What a concept. Of course, I always marvel at the fact that when you go to buy bananas in the store and you want them ripe, they are marked down and dirt cheap because nobody wants to buy spotted bananas. Right about the point they become edible, the stores want to get rid of them. We'll have to talk to some plant geneticists here at UC Davis about this, uh, this tomato issue. And of course, as, uh, as the nation is suffering from a great heat wave and corn crops are drying up all over the country, um, which is really sad because there was talk about the largest bumper corn crop in generations because of perfect conditions in spring, but uh, things have turned south and corn is just being wiped out all over the country. I would suggest to our agriculture industry that it may be time to look at some alternatives and... Um, the Andes' new cash crop may offer a solution. Quinoa has really taken off. Uh, it's a fad food you, you can find in like Whole Foods and all sorts of places. I, I, I first discovered quinoa in a trip to uh, Bolivia a couple of decades ago, and it's everywhere. It tastes great. The beauty of it, it grows in really marginal, arid lands. I'd be willing to bet if we had quinoa planted in Iowa right now, nobody'd be worried about the, uh, the big drought. Quinoa does have the potential to be a success story in South America. In Peru, they've gone from 7,000 tons uh, produced in 19, back in the 1980s to 42,000 last year. But there can be problems. Article in The Economist notes that in Bolivia, where land suitable for, for quinoa is scarce, farmers are squabbling over existing plots. In March, residents of two indigenous towns fought with sticks and grenades over the right to grow quinoa in a disputed arid area on their border that left 34 people injured and of course as world prices grow the local producers have a greater incentive to ship those crops abroad rather than squander them at their own dinner tables so there's some problems to work out but i hope that uh, that quinoa and other crops may ride to the rescue Chris, speaking of organic versus non-organic i note that there's an article in the sacramento bee about this aerial spraying for mosquitoes going on all over sacramento a, a treatment that is only effective in killing 40% of the mosquitoes, in which the mosquitoes bounce back from 10 days later. I, I need some answers to why in the hell we are doing this. Peace in the Sacramento Bee by Cynthia Kraft uh, described how uh, a South Area resident looked up at 8 o'clock and saw a plane at 300 feet tooling along with a mist coming off the back of it, leaving a residue on all the organic crops. A residue of organophosphates, which if you'll take the time to look it up, you'll find where developed by the Germans as a nerve gas. I, I realize that, you know, we do have to have some pesticides in modern agriculture, but, you know, I, I think that um, we really do need to take a step back and examine how much good is being done by spraying nerve gas all over the countryside when you're only killing 
less than half the mosquito population. If you know something about this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com, and I know that some of you do. We need to, need to talk about this one. But it's time for a break, so let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll come back in our third segment here and talk to our old pal, Matt Perry. <laughs> 